Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. I'm your host, Stella. In each episode, I interview an expert in an emerging area of public relations. I aim to bring you all of the facts, but where possible, leave out the jargon. It's a podcast about communications and marketing, but it's very much in plain language. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions on who I should be interviewing, leave it in the comments or connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Stella Bales. And don't forget to subscribe. We're on Spotify, iTunes, and on YouTube. So without further ado, let's get to the next episode. Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. It is a very busy week in amongst Christmas parties, end of year reports. I know a lot of you are also planning for next year. So if you happen to be in consumer PR, this episode is really going to help you out. If you're in sport and entertainment, this episode is gold dust to you right now. I'm interviewing Amar Singh. Amar is a journalist turned content and digital marketing expert in sport and entertainment. Amar has spent time at the data football specialist Squawker. He also worked in-house at Budweiser as their head of global football content. And then he worked at the greatest football team in the world, West Ham United, where he was head of content and really understood the complex layers of Hammers fans. Um, he really took their content globally as well across multiple platforms and grew their audience. Now at MKTG, he's vice president of content and communications, and he and his team are real experts at understanding fans on a deeper level and a global scale. Through their regular annual research, understanding and decoding the modern fan, they really take those insights through to their clients. In our chat, we get into how fan behavior has changed in the last few years and how they've actually changed and shifted the industry and how brands operate. We talk about the rise in sports pros and especially football players being more influential in causes they believe in and in brand decisions as well. We look at what generation of fans are more receptive to brands and why the younger generation of fans are demanding a lot more from brands, not just in their experience, but also how brands operate and do better in the world. Amar is so culturally aware and he's passionate about people. You can really see how his content and comm strategies work so well. This interview is full of his wisdom, but also practical tips as well. We get into collecting insight on behavior and measurement too. Here's Amar. Amar, thank you so much for joining me on the PR Resolution podcast and for squeezing this in just before Christmas. I know it's a really busy time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Stella. I appreciate it. I really wanted you on because we are here to talk about sports and entertainment industry. Two reasons I really wanted to have a chat with you and Miles, that there's been some really big changes around the past couple of years, which we're going to come on to. But also, particularly at this time, I know that there's so many people planning and building strategies for next year. So I know that your wisdom in, in insight and strategy will really help some of the listeners. But let's get into some of these changes that we have seen. I know that you guys have looked at a report that's recently been released called Decoding the Modern Fan, which actually looks at some of the changes among fans. Uh, but within sports and entertainment, obviously COVID was huge impact mm. on both industries in terms of live events. Would you say that COVID is the biggest change or have we seen others? Yeah, so I think what was happening was we were seeing changes already in motion. You could say that the industry was shifting. There was almost an existential crisis going on because what was happening was the traditional model was completely being disrupted. 
you had the diversification of media, you saw ratings drop, you saw old platforms, traditional platforms weaken, and then new platforms coming up. So the industry has been playing catch up with this sort of digital revolution that's been going on over the last 10, 15 years. New generations of fans, completely different, and the commercial structure of the business having to adapt to that. And I think the pandemic accelerated that because what happened was it put us all into lockdown and it just accelerated the digitization of our lives, basically, and the way that we were engaging with our passions. And sport came to a halt for a while, which was a sad time. And entertainment and live events, that was a time which we all struggled with, I think, to engage with our passions, but our passions didn't go away. So the rights holders and media and publishers and brands, I was working at Budweiser at the time as a sponsor of the Premier League and La Liga. We had to find new ways to engage with fans, to feed that passion and also to deliver purpose as well and almost help turn this really awful situation, help to add value during this difficult time for people. So it was seismic. It really was. And I think in our lifetime, Stella, I don't think we'll see or have seen such a period of change. And you can't underestimate coming out of that the different landscape that we now find ourselves in, I think. Mm. It's so interesting, the balance between having to adapt to the situation that everybody was in, the common fans that you were used to at Budweiser and all sorts of other events and brands. So you had the fans that were used to, but then also this new generation who consume media in a completely different way and Mm -hmm. serving the two. How did you do that? If you don't mind talking about it when you were at Budweiser during COVID, what kind of things did you change? So for Budweiser, it was interesting because we had an always-on publishing strategy which was related to creating content around the week-in, week-out flow of Premier League and La Liga matches. And that was being activated all over the world and it was being coordinated centrally by myself as a sort of global publishing team. And um, then all of a sudden, all the football's been called off. So you're like, we've got these partnerships, we've got all these assets. We don't want to go silent. What can we do at this time? We don't want to just be talking about our brand. It didn't feel like a time to be shouting about marketing and traditional marketing. So we looked at ways to try and drive value. So there was a lot of purpose-driven work that went on. For example, we we donated, we created... um, and sanitizer from the surplus alcohol that was used in the brewing process and gave that to the NHS, for example. There was a campaign called Save Pub Life, which we worked on in the UK, where we helped raise, I think, 1.5 million in the end for people to go towards pubs, to get people to go back into pubs because we wanted to support these small businesses that were in our network. And I think my favorite one that I worked on was for the FA Cup final, where there were you did have some fans coming back. So the FA Cup final, I think it would have been in 2020 now. We donated all our sponsorship space and all our sponsorship assets to pubs in Leicester and in around London as well. The idea was support your club, support your pubs as well. And just to remind people that the pubs were reopening a few days later, which was what was happening at the time. So to get back into, into the pubs. So... That was a case of you you didn't even see the brand Budweiser during that weekend. Everything we had, we just gave to all all these these pubs. 
So I really enjoyed working on that. And I think when you're working in marketing, it's really fulfilling when you're able to deliver like purpose-driven work and actually help causes that resonate with fans as well. I mean, it, it really came from the fans, actually. We were speaking to fans. We were working closely with the clubs and their supporters groups to understand which pubs are part of the daily ritual for fans. So it would be, oh, I usually go to the Butcher's Hook for a pint before I go to Stamford Bridge. Okay, let's try and work with the Butcher's Hook. It actually didn't even matter to us if they had Budweiser on tap or not. It wasn't about promoting our beer. It was just working with pubs that were frequented by fans on a match day. And uh, so it was a very much a fan-powered idea. Mm. Always tends to work a lot better, obviously. <laughs> um, what's something I found really interesting in looking through decoding the modern fan report was the difference in the way this younger generation engages with brands and what they expect from brands from older fans <laughs> the older generation um would you mind just sharing a little bit of insight there because it's more about yeah, what, yeah it's that sort of they, do, they expect a little bit more don't they yeah they do expect a bit more but they're also more receptive sponsors and that's something that we measure at mktg it's a concept of receptivity so traditionally a lot of brands working in sport will say oh we want to go where the passion is we want to go and speak to passionate fans but actually there's a bit more to it than simply passion it's about receptivity and what we do is we look at people and divide them we look at fans and we divide them into three receptives so they actively engage with sponsors selectives meaning they will engage with the sponsor if that sponsor is offering some kind of utility so they're slightly harder to win over and then non-receptives so they're just not in it for sponsors they're not interested in sponsors there will be people who will go to a football match or a cricket match or engage with their favorite music artist just don't have any interest about brands and that's fine you're never going to win them over that's fine that's who they are and in, when you look at this new generation of fans, when you look at, say, 18 to 34-year-olds, a lot of them are receptive. 29% of them are receptive, which is much higher than the older age groups. So that's a great thing for sponsors working in sport. That's a really positive thing. But in order to actually engage with them, you know, what our research showed was you need to be offering some sort of utility they expect, they've grown up with brands being central to their passions and interests. They expect those fans to be offering something. So is that sponsor improving fan engagement? Is it helping them feel closely connected to their heroes and to their passions? Is it getting them unlocking some kind of exclusive content, some kind of reward? So I think if, if you're a sponsor and you're trying to speak to Gen Zs, then that's always got to be central to your strategy. What are we doing? What utility are we providing? What's our role in this partnership? But also, how does that ladder into what utility we're providing to the fan? Does this tend to be the same kind of attitudes in sport and music, or does it differ between the two industries? It's very similar, actually. When we conducted our research, we looked at various passion points, and we included entertainment, and we included music, things like live music, and it's very similar. And those lines are, are completely blurred for younger fans now. People don't define themselves in, I'm interested in football and that's it, or I'm interested in gaming and that's it, or I'm a music fan and that's it. Increasingly, we have more passion points than we used to. And increasingly, these worlds merge together all the time. Very typically, you might speak to an 18 to 13-year-old and your target persona and the profile you build of them 
will be someone who's passionate about their favourite football team, but they might have four or five footballers that they love outside of that team, and they might have a favourite video games console, and they might be into gaming, and they might be sneakerheads as well, and they might have a fashion brand that they like, and they might have three or four music artists that they like to stream. So the more you can build up this sort of less siloed profile, the more you can understand, and increasingly... We're seeing more passion points. And what happened during the pandemic was we actually increased more passion points. People started doing more things. We unlocked new passions and found new interests. But that also creates a more complex picture for sponsors. Talking about the complex picture for sponsors, a lot of the time on this podcast, I'm talking from the brand perspective because a lot of brands, PR teams and agencies listen to this podcast and use the tools that I'm involved in. And also that was my background as well. Agencies working with brands, but mm-hmm. more and more we're starting to see clubs using coverage book. And I know that you do have really interesting career experience and you have been both sides. We know how much insight goes into the strategy of building marketing plans for brands. How much of that goes into the other side as well? Do in-house clubs, for example, look at this amount of detail into fans and the passions that they may have, or is it just solely focused on on the team? Yeah, I think I think it's improving all the time. And I would say working on the brand side and the agency side, we're maybe a little bit ahead of the rights holders, but generally speaking, the clubs are all on a journey in terms of learning how to better understand the fans, better monetize their fans. And you know, what I learned I worked at West Ham United for two years and I learned during my time there. I know you're a passionate... I tried uh, hard not to say anything. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm a huge Hammer fan, (laughs) listeners. (laughs) I mean, and I was talking about brand sponsorship and then I just glanced back at his LinkedIn and was like, wait, you're at West Ham? (laughs) I have so many questions off air. (laughs) Sorry, I interrupt. Go on. You're... You know, passionate West Ham fan, and during my time there, there were so many passionate West West Ham fans, and I came to realize and really appreciate that you have people working in these clubs, whether it be in supporter relations, or whether it be in the foundation or the community departments, who have a, an unbelievable understanding and feel for the community around these clubs, and the respect that you have for them is huge because they just really understand what makes people tick, and I think that's so important. So what you have is your your fans that are concentrated around clubs like West Ham and the more traditional fans whose fandom was passed down by their parents and from the people around them. Uh, Were your parents West Ham fans or your parents West Ham fans? Yeah, all of my family are East End. But there you go. Absolutely nobody would, well, I wonder how many of my family members listen to this. There was a family member who did support another team and then we didn't really speak, didn't really speak. <laughs> guess. Yeah, of course. Excommunicated them. <laughs> yeah, we're all, all of my family from Bethnal Green and then I was brought up in Essex. Right. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're very, my, in a way... My mum was going from when yeah. she was a toddler. Like, it was... It's We've got a family brick at the new stadium, even though we didn't Amazing. Move, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you went on your own with that sentence. No, I know. You were there during that time. You really did understand the fans. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think, like I said, you're, you're indicative of, of that sort of West Ham fan that is so important to the club, that runs in the DNA of the club, and that the club, I think, has close connections with, and people in that club have different connections with, moving out into that area, into Essex and Romford and all those sorts of areas as well. 
that's a real heartland for West Ham United. But you also have fans who are global now and fans who will be following West Ham because they signed Chicharito a few years ago or they signed Lucas Paqueta or or Thomas Suchek. And those fans are um, interesting to the club as well. And that is happening at clubs everywhere. So how do you, you reconcile your strategy when you're speaking to two very different types of fans? Yeah. How do you speak to them? How do you get your data on them? And how do you understand them? How do you appeal to that new fan base without ostracizing that traditional fan base as well? And that's a tension that happens at every club. So I think the importance of data in understanding that, the importance of getting first-party data, not just looking at your social following and getting what you can from your social following is huge. And some clubs are doing it really well and some clubs have a long way to go, I think. Yeah, we're going to talk about a couple more insights that have come from the report because I know that we were going to talk about other things and then I had a look at this report. This is so interesting. So it's decoding the modern fan. Can people download this, by the way? Yeah, it's available to download. We have a website for it. And there's also a copy of it on the drum as well. It's decodingstudy.com is where you can get the report. I'll include a link in the notes. How did you go about researching fans for decoding the modern fan report? What kind of research did you do? So Decoding was an interview with, we had 24,507 fans interviewed across the world. So like 20 different countries across the Americas, Europe, Middle East, North Africa, Asia Pacific as well. And it was a very extensive questionnaire covering topics like current behavior, passions, interests, and said measuring receptivity. And it's a questionnaire that we do NKTG every couple of years. And then what happens is we publish like a global report. We publish regional reports. If you look at decodingstudy.com, you'll see the global report is on there. Um, and then we'll work with our partners and clients who come to us and say, can we drill down on this? Can we look at, for example, receptivity of cricket fans in South Asia, for example, against other cricket fan data sets? And we can drill down into that. So it's a really useful tool for us. And another survey that we conduct every year is Frontier, where we actually then look at the sponsorship and partnership sector, and we interview professionals working in the sector. And what we try and do is find where the gaps are. So if we've got people telling us in decoding that purpose is really important to them, for example, or they are not interested in NFTs, or they're really passionate about the metaverse, and then we see that there is a gap with what the industry is telling us, then we will use that as an opportunity to speak to clients. We'll use that as an opportunity to propose new activations and try and actually just help bridge that gap. I love that. Especially around this time of year, it's an important time for planning all for next year. This podcast is brought to you by CoverageBook, the tool that creates beautifully designed reports with credible metrics you can be proud of. Head to coveragebook.com for your free trial. You mentioned cause-related marketing there. We can't do this interview without talking about the World Cup. We're in the middle of the World Cup at the moment. There has been so many issues, as we know. And if my podcast before this was all about that, fans care, don't they? Fans care about issues and, and people. And we are seeing this more associated to sport and entertainment. We said that... The younger fans are expecting brands to do more. We know just from <laughs> seeing the news and media, there has been an increase, hasn't there, in, in calls, marketing and brands stepping up and doing more. What did you find in the study? Yeah, so with decoding, 
we found that 86% of fans have expressed an interest in cause-related marketing. And in 2020, when we conducted that survey, it was 44%. So it's grown exponentially during that time. And I think if you think about the world, just from a human perspective over the last few years, it becomes quite clear why that's happened. I think yeah. the pandemic has led people to really think more about how they can help make the world a better place, how precarious maybe our existence is a little bit. Uh, and also during that time, you had the death of George Floyd which was a tragedy which resonated across the world. It led to real galvanized conversations, real energy around issues such as racial equality, ethnic diversity, particularly as well, where we saw a disproportionately high number of minority ethnics affected by the pandemic as well. So that caused a real big moment, if you remember, if you cost your mind back to that time, Stella, where a lot of companies were thinking, what, what is our role? What can we say about this? Maybe uh, maybe we do need to do more around ethnic diversity. Maybe our boardroom is not diverse enough. So maybe we can't say anything until we get our act together. So I think some companies have been doing that to really good effect. Um, some companies probably have a very long way to go as well. And uh, then you've seen a lot of renewed conversation and energy around things like sustainability, the environment. That's only getting bigger every year as a sort of talking point that resonates on social media um, and Qatar has brought into focus issues such as LGBTQ rights and with sport now fully in bed, if you like, with some of these Middle Eastern countries that are investing heavily in sport. This is an issue that's going to come up time and time again in yeah. sport. So people activating sport need to understand where they stand on it and not just what they're going to say about it, but their credentials and what they're doing about it as well to make uh, sport an inclusive place for LGBTQ. And you've also got human rights as well as an issue, which because of some of the horrific reports around the stadium construction in Qatar. And that again, that hasn't gone away either. So even though people are enjoying the tournament and enjoying the spectacle, these issues are bubbling up over the surface all the time because of social media, because people are more politically conscious, because you've got social activism and because the players and the protagonists in sport are more conscious about these things as well. So it's a powder keg mm. of, of issues. And so brands looking to enter sport cannot separate these issues from sport and just say, hey, enjoy the spectacle of sport. No, people know these two things go hand in hand now and people want to know what you're doing to make the world a better, better place through sport. You talked about maybe boards looking around and being like, we don't seem very diverse on the leadership team of this brand. But even yeah. throughout a business, we've been talking about collecting the right kind of data on fans. How much of a balance should it be of reviewing data on fans, but then also having a diverse team that really understands the fans mm. and the audience that we're trying to connect to on all levels. Yeah, it's so important, isn't it? It's um, it's not just morally important to try and have a diverse team, but for business reasons, it's important because if you're trying to speak to a diverse audience, the world is more diverse. Even European cities now are completely diverse. So if you're speaking to a European audience, for example, but your team and your business does not reflect the diversity that's out there on the streets, the diversity in that audience, you're immediately at a disadvantage, aren't you? Yeah. And so how you go about bridging that gap is not easy, but you need to have the will within your organization to do that. In 20 years in my career, I've seen a lot of positive changes in this way, but I started out as a journalist 
and as uh, working for the London Evening Standard as one of a very small group of ethnic minority journalists there. And uh, did we reflect the city that we were covering? No, we didn't. But have, has things changed exponentially in the media and have these conversations grown and has the media had to adapt? Absolutely. So I think we're definitely, diversity is not something you can complete and it's not something for your few ethnic minority people to solve in their lunch break. It's for an organisation to deliver from the top down. And I think it includes all protected characteristics that are not just ethnic diversity, LGBTQ, looking at things like age as well, looking at diversity of backgrounds. And ultimately, if you have a diverse team, particularly working in activations and sponsorships and sport, you're going to be an advantage. And if your team is not diverse, and if your organization does not understand the benefits of diversity, then you're a dinosaur, basically. Coming out of the brand side and onto the fan side, especially in the lead up to the World Cup, there wasn't there was very rarely talk on, on the teams football itself it was all the negative stories and mm. quite often we'd hear the line of politics should be kept out of sport and I feel like I've heard that more and more recently and whether it's on the radio or amongst fans that's almost impossible right <laughs> I understand it like when you want to just watch a football game and that's it yeah and, and actually the pressure that was on Harry Kane around the armbands just thought oh mm. He shouldn't be thinking about that just before he's going in for that match. But it's, as we've just discussed, it's so difficult, isn't it, for it not to reach the games itself? Yeah, absolutely. And and look, I don't think sport and politics are colliding for the first time. Take football, for example. You had the World Cup in 1934 was a, was a celebration of fascism at the time for Italy. You had the World Cup in 1978, which took place in Argentina under a pretty sinister military leadership. In 1986, when one of the most famous games in the history of the World Cup, when Diego Maradona knocked out England with the goal of the century and the hand of God goal, he spoke afterwards about the Falklands War and how that had motivated him to beat the English because of the perceived humiliation of Falklands. Sport and Politics have always collided, have always intertwined. The FIFA World Cup has always been a, a, a place where that resonates. What has changed is the noise has grown around it, the, the fact that people have a voice, and also the fact that players now are not afraid to be advocates for the causes that matter to them. Because there was a time when players weren't, were limited in what they could do as their own brand. They had to work with partners, they had to work with publishers, they had to work with people and the clubs and the organisations to reach the fans. But now they have their own audiences. They are influencers in themselves. Mm. And the best ones and the savviest ones know how to monetize that. They know their brand, they know their image. The most marketable athletes in the world are people like Lewis Hamilton and LeBron James and Serena Williams. And why is that? It's because they stand for more than just the sport that they do. They believe in causes and that makes them very interesting and appealing from a marketing point of view because there's just so much to them and they're reaching an audience that goes outside of the passion of their sport. Mm -hmm. So what you have now is you have footballers who have clear beliefs about what they believe in. And a lot of this, the one love armband or taking a knee, has been driven by the players. Yeah. After George Floyd and the first Premier League matches that came after the restart where the players were taking a knee 
and even initially were wearing Black Lives Matter on their shirts. That came from the group of players coming together in the Premier League and saying, we need to do something. And if you think about it, a lot of those players have come from diverse backgrounds. A lot of them have come from impoverished backgrounds. A lot of them are in groups and teams that are very diverse. So there are many reasons why you think, even though these people are millionaires, they're also probably more in touch with society and the issues that matter to fans in society than a lot of politicians. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Same with Rashford as well, the great work that he's been doing is because of his personal experience. It's not going to go away, is it? I can't say, I can't speak on uh, for other sports because I'm not quite as into other sports as I am as a football, but, but they do bring people together who through who are going through hardship. You talked about some of those examples of Maradona talking about the Falklands and I know very well my, my boyfriend's a huge, he's Irish and he's a huge Celtic fan and you know, through, through my education on Celtic, I know that that was started because of the Irish immigrants coming over to Scotland and the poverty in Glasgow, and as much as many teams were created from hardship and which is through politics as well. So it's always going to be there, isn't it? Yeah. And it's really important when brands are partnering with football clubs and it's really important for people working within those football clubs to appreciate and understand the heritage of those clubs and some of the best work out of clubs nods to that heritage. And there are certain things... There's certain things that you can do at West Ham United, which you wouldn't do at Chelsea. And there's certain things that you can do at Arsenal, which you wouldn't do at Tottenham. And understanding that area and working closely with those fans is really important. So for example, take, for example, crypto and Web3 and all the money that's come into the game from those sectors. Um, it's really important that clubs work with fans to understand and consult fans and say, are you happy with us partnering with this fan token or this cryptocurrency or launching these NFTs? Because if you just perceive to be making a cash grab and going against the values of the club, then you know, you're going to upset your fan base. Yeah. And that is not a good place to be if you're a club. It's not a good place to be for your comm strategy. It's not a good place to be for anything. A lot of people have said it. I completely agree with it. I preach this as well. Football clubs are not like ordinary businesses. Somewhere in between institutions and religions almost in terms of what they mean to people. So you have to tread carefully when you're looking to get money through the door and you're looking to sign partnerships. Yeah. You have to understand that, what's going to resonate with your fans and what's not. And the best work is when you strike a chord with your fans because you're, you're nodding to that heritage. Yeah. Wow. Crypto is very different to Magnus and Betfair, isn't it? <laughs> From a lifestyle perspective. <laughs> We've talked about calls related marketing and it's really important that brands are getting better at, uh, at connecting with fans about and doing good. What about when it's not always genuine and uh, there's a bit of calls washing going on you can think of a rather big alcohol brands that's been talked about recently with that kind of thing are we seeing that is that just a one-off what's your opinion on calls washing ultimately if you're going into a purpose-driven space and you're not backing up your the noise you're not backing up the ad with the act then you're going to get called out for it whether that be LGBTQ or human rights or racial equality. We live in a world where 
people are vocal and principled and they will advocate for you if you get it right, but they will absolutely call you out if you get it wrong. Now, to some people, that's a risk that they will take. So, for example, Brewdog, who recently launched their World Cup, World Cup boycott, even though they're showing all the games in, in their pubs, I, I suspect probably knew they would get a backlash from marketeers and people like me who think you're not really that credible as a, as a boycott because you're still making quite a lot of money out of showing this World Cup and you haven't named your human rights partner and you said you're giving money to human rights, but I'll believe that when I see it. Thing. But at the same time, they got all the noise and they got all the earned reach because mm -hmm. people were talking about it and people were making a lot of noise out of it and it looked good and it looked impactful. And I thought I took it as a post-truth campaign, if you like. You know, all the vibes of a purpose-driven campaign, but none of the actual substance behind it. So I think there are organisations that are willing to play that role, tread that path. Um, but ultimately, the ads must be accompanied by the acts because you'll come undone if the storytelling isn't matched by the story doing. Yeah. It's ever changing, isn't it? To be aware of all causes and how people feel about different things going on in the world. What tips can you give to, to teams, especially planning for next year, to, to try and track some of this? What tools do, should people have in place to try and keep up to date with people's opinions about different causes and to really make sure they're not missing a trick into next year? I think it's about great audience insights and that can be quantitative work like we do with decoding or really qualitative focus groups and just speaking to people and understanding your target audience and like any good activation like any good campaign the more data and insights you have on your target audience the better equipped you're going to be so i always think if you're looking at a purpose-driven campaign for example we've worked with a football club where we found that unemployment was a really big issue in their community at the time and in their, the fans local to that club and so we decided to activate around shining a light on the community and helping the club create opportunities for that community and we do this with Mondelez Cadbury one of our one of our partners where we look at with and Cadbury are all about generosity everything they want to do their brand position is about generosity and helping the community we work with them on it on leveraging their club partnerships to drive generosity within the community but we don't do that before understanding the issues that really matter to the fans. and that comes from insights that comes from speaking to the fans that comes from working very closely with the club and working with the community departments within these clubs as well many of which are fantastically run to understand about the causes that resonate and it's a real mixed bag there are areas where human rights are more important to people there are parts of the world where animal welfare comes first and there are parts of the world where tackling poverty is really pronounced health and well-being disability rights what a fan in europe for example might find as a resonant cause a fan in the middle east might feel differently or a fan in asia might feel differently so one thing this world cup has really shown is there's not one single global set of values that everyone follows it's a complex it's a complicated patchwork picture and so getting that data together and really understanding how to build your target audience profile is like super important and we do that for people all the time at NKTG Stella and we use 
proprietary tools for that and we also work with partners for that it really depends because every brand has completely different objectives as we always hear there is no silver bullet and there's no silver bullet in measurement either but i'm still going to ask the question do you use similar methods when you have rolled out the activation and you are then looking to see how successful you were do you then go back to similar methods that you used in the insight phase or do you do something different with measurement yeah, again, it really depends on the objectives and what success is going to look like for that partnership. There are ways that you can track sentiment, for example, and you can track share of voice and social media and you can work with tools. We work with Brandwatch, for example, is very good for tracking things like that. We might focus group. It really depends on what the brand is after and what is moving the dial. We look at things like we, we deliver employee engagement programs for FedEx, for example, as one of our partners. And they're a fantastic organization and they have a huge global employee base. And so they look to drive engagement and satisfaction through in their UEFA partnership for employees. And so we will measure that. We'll work with them to measure that and understand um, wh whether we're moving the dial, whether we're getting more engagement from their employees is like an audience set for us, a data set for us. It's really important to have that evaluation process. It's really important to justify the value of that sponsorship. And it's something that we're kind of quite evangelical on, actually, at MKTG. It's one of the things we do quite well. Talking about the match of the right kinds of brand partner with games... There's been some talk about that recently. I actually saw it in your newsletter, a little plug for you there. <laughs> it's a great newsletter about how ongoing brand partners, especially with the World Cup, uh, some have been there for a long time. And whether they are the right brand partners, especially when we're seeing some players not want to be associated with alcohol or like Ronaldo with Coca-Cola a couple of years ago. It's interesting this, isn't it? That the sort of the brand match. And that all comes from trying to understand bands better, isn't it? Yeah, so like the latest piece I wrote was about Kylian Mbappe, France's star. But uh, it's not just on the pitch that he's making an impact, it's off the pitch because he's leading and galvanised this group of French players who are now changing the contractual situation that they have between them and the, on their image rights with the French Federation. What used to happen was they would have to sign this contract where they gave all their image rights away when with, when with the national team to whoever are France's partners, but Kylian Mbappe did not want to be on a KFC advertising campaign, for example, because he feels quite strongly and passionately about supporting a healthy lifestyle and I'm a role model for children and I don't want to be necessarily associated with this brand or that brand. And that's happening quite a lot. We've seen that happen a lot in football over the last few years, but this is clubs and national federations and governing bodies have always been quite sometimes laissez-faire about it with players and allowing them to, as they become more influential and powerful, clubs have said, okay, we understand. But this is the first time where you're going to see contractual exemption, if they want, on, on, on partners. And that's quite significant. On religious grounds, for example, a player might not want to be associated with an alcohol brand or a betting brand, for example. But now you're seeing it, it's also in terms of their principles and also if they have their own personal partnerships as well. And that's obviously growing in the game now. So if you're a brand and you want, let's say, Harry Kane on your product, there are different routes you can take with that partnership. You can go to England and the FA because Harry Kane is an England captain and is going to be playing quite a lot and think, OK, I wouldn't mind Harry Kane being on some of my things. Or you can go to Tottenham Hotspur, who's his club, or you could go to Harry Kane 
and his agent, and you can try and do a deal with Harry Kane. My advice as a marketeer and a partnerships guy would always be to that brand. If you want Harry Kane, then speak to Harry Kane's people. Don't try and cheat him because there are going to be limitations with how, how much you can utilize Harry Kane on a national team partnership or on a club level partnership, for example. And people can't take for granted that they're just going to get players by proxy of being associated with the clubs or the national associations. It's all part of this shift that we're seeing where more power and more revenue is really going towards the players who are the stars of the game. And maybe that some of the power, traditional power that we used to have at the clubs and used to be at the governing bodies is being weakened a little bit. And those that those that side of the club, those rights holders, that side of the sector are going to have to work harder to understand the value of their partnerships. It's going to be really interesting in the coming years seeing that that shift and decisions on which brand partners being more considered and not maybe not so much just about how much money they're putting into the deal and maybe more of a decision from the players and to do with lifestyle or beliefs it could be a really interesting shift and I think. It- it's good to to really think about how they're influencing young people, children in their lifestyle as well. The flip side to it is, Stella, that if you find a player that really believes in what you're promoting and understands where you're coming from and you can align your values with that player, then that's where the magic happens. That's where you get, you, they end up over-delivering for you. So, for example, when we launched Bud Zero in the UK, I went to Jordan Henderson because we had a partnership with the England team as Budweiser, but we I knew that Jordan Henderson would be behind that because he is teetotal, he doesn't drink, and he was fully behind us doing a dry January campaign to encourage a moderate lifestyle. And he wasn't like, I'm not going anywhere near this brand, but I really believe in what you're doing and the message you're putting out there and I'm going to over-deliver for you. And he ended up doing that. He ended up over-delivering for us as a partner because he fully believed in the message that we were putting out there. Yeah, that's great that he did that. It's interesting to see, isn't it? Because obviously there's some brands who have more funding, but then they're trying to do better as well. So interesting. We can watch on that one. I've realised we could just keep going, especially when we're talking about football. But Amar, thank you so much. Just a recap on how people can follow you and also subscribe to your newsletter. If you could share that, that'd be great. So I'm on LinkedIn and Instagram and Twitter. Amarjourno, which is my legacy handle from my journalistic days, which has never changed. But uh, so it's at Amarjourno. And also my newsletter is called The Sports Marketeer. So please look that up and uh, give it a follow if you're interested in these sorts of subjects then it'd be great it's brilliant do that do that Amar thank you so much we'll speak to you soon thanks Stella my pleasure